0: I titled this the best podcast ever because it just is. This is where Dr. Lane Norton and I really get into, not even too big of an argument, right? But we get into, God, all things weight loss and and body related and fitness related. We're talking about calories in and calories out. I'm debating with him on the insulin, fat loss, conundrum that we are in, in today's society with so much keto and low carbon carnivore advice coming at us. Thankfully he agrees with me that you're not going to heal your thyroid, your metabolism or various disease states just by healing your gut. Are you sick of hearing me talk about young goose yet? Well, that's too bad because I love them and I have been using them now for years, probably about two or three years. And I can honestly say that my skin looks great. So I go to my plastic surgeon's office to get a little bit of Botox, right? And he says, what are you doing for your skin? Because your skin looks great. And I'm 50. It's going to be young goose. You know, I've never had the ability to do those ablative lasers that are supposed to refresh and renew your skin. I just can't do it. I break out. So I love a good product line, that is actually going to do something with my skin and help me not age. So whether we're talking about eye cream, finding that perfect eye cream, whether you're finding that perfect collagen-boosting cream that smooths out wrinkles, Young Goose has it all. I use pretty much everything in their line, but my favorites are going to be the Care Moisturizer. This has NAD and NAD-boosting powers to it, which obviously helps your skin. We love NAD for anti-aging. I use the hyperbaric mask at night. I put that on. Oh my gosh. It just renews and replenishes and hydrates my skin. I use the ProCare serum. This is an anti-aging serum. It's senolytic, meaning it's going to seek out and destroy the bad cells and promote new cell growth. I use the Adaptogenic Cleanser. I use the Amplifying Essence, which really kind of boosts up your skincare. Overall, bio C Peptide Spray as a toner. Their entire line is fantastic. If you even start with two to three products, you will notice a difference in your skin. So you're gonna go to younggoose.com and you're gonna use the code Dr. Amy. This is going to save you 5% off. Now, is it a ginormous savings? No, but their line is so precise and so grounded in science, this is what they can offer. And, you know, I love the owners too. I think buying from from a family-owned company is so important. And if you met the owners, you would fall in love and want to use their products every single day because you know that their heart and soul is literally behind this line. So younggoose.com, use the code Dr. Amy, you will notice a difference in your skin. Have you ever heard of the baobab fruit? It's really interesting. And it is such an affordable way to increase your antioxidants because this thing is a multi talented multivitamin, multimineral, multi multi-mineral, one-of-a-kind supplement in powder form that you throw into your shakes. Oh my God. It just pretty much becomes a no-brainer. So this particular Baobab Boost from Trim Healthy Mama, my two favorite ladies on the planet, they introduced me to this amazing antioxidant and I fell in love. I put it in all the time. Every single shake that I have, I put the Baobab powder in. It's citrus and sherbet tasting dried flesh, has five times the fiber of oats, and a higher antioxidant level than any food on the planet. That's eight times that of the superberry acai and more than blueberries and pomegranates combined. So quit eating all the sugar and just use organic baobab fruit pulp. It's that easy. Because Trim Healthy Mama, they put that into a nice powder. Like I said, I just scoop it right out, throw it into my shake. Oh my gosh, it reduces inflammation. It helps with weight loss. And the other really interesting thing about it is it's kind of working as an appetite suppressant. Now, I know it's not touted for that, but when you put it in your shake, especially first thing in the morning, throw that into a nice protein shake, you'll notice that your appetite is definitely curbed. So now I'm thinking of this perfect stack to replace or or supplement those GLPs out there on the market. What if we did Baobab and Metabolism Fixer together? That would be crazy at controlling your appetite. And with the Baobab, you're getting all those antioxidants. It's, it's amazing. And this powder is so affordable. It is so affordable. So you're going to go to store.trimhealthymama.com And look up Baobab, it's B-A-O-B-A-B, Baobab Boost Powder. Uh, These ladies have just gone all out with their entire line, but this is one of my favorites because I started using it and I have to say that I noticed the appetite suppression difference. And then when I dove down the rabbit hole of what else is in it, the antioxidant content, the multi-mineral content, it just becomes a no-brainer. So store.trimhealthymoma.com. Look for Baobab powder. Enjoy. So let me tell you a little bit about Lane and then you can enjoy this kick ass podcast. Lane is a self-proclaimed nerd who lifts heavy things. Lane completed his BS in biochemistry with honors from Eckerd College and a PhD in nutritional sciences with honors from the University of Illinois. His competitive athletic career highlights include two USA powerlifting national titles, 2015 Arnold Classic champion, and an overall silver medal at the 2015 IPF World Championships. Right up my alley with the competition, with the powerlifting, with the bodybuilding. Gosh, I worked at the Arnold Classic back in the day. As an innovator in the fitness industry, Lane helped popularize flexible dieting and online nutrition coaching and contest prep from 05 to 2018 he worked with over 1700 clients and over 500 competitors with over 70 of them attaining pro status and for those of you who don't know what that means that is a huge accomplishment it is so hard to get your pro card in the bodybuilding arena since moving away from online coaching lane is focused on writing books he wrote fat loss forever the complete contest prep guide the complete reverse dieting guide. He developed the Carbon Diet Coach, a nutritional coaching app that I have talked about. Ad nauseum on here. I have no affiliate with them at all. I just think it is a fantastic app and allows you to really look at everything that you're putting in your mouth. So enjoy this. Lane and I go into all of this. So go past this intro, get into the meat of the podcast and just enjoy it. Lane Norton, Dr. Lane Norton, thank you so much for coming on. And like we said, off camera, we have so much in common from the competing in bodybuilding to the powerlifting to the calling out people's bullshit. And just in general, I I just love your message. I love your brain. And I love how you describe yourself to a BS expert in nutrition, health, and fitness, a science geek that likes to lift heavy shit, because I'm always telling women to LHS lift heavy shit. And I just want you to know before we get started, yeah, there's going to, I'm going to bring up some things that I really want to kind of pick your brain on that I agree with you on that I don't agree with you on, but I want your brain working and telling me the why, because I really want to kind of pick through it. I know you, I think, you know, where I'm going with the insulin, but when I listen to you on Huberman, I feel like you held back. People listening to this need to go and they need to listen to your what the fitness talks on YouTube or on your website, because that is the real you. So I want you unfiltered, just let it all go. Does that sound like a deal? Sounds like a deal. I heard curse words, so I'll let it go. Just let it go. Just you be you. That's what I want. You be you. So honestly, Lane, I mean, you're you're just so well-schooled, and I love how you go through studies and really pick them apart. And honestly, most everything you say, I agree with you on. Ironically, recently, I did a podcast on calories in, calories out, and I think that that's so important to dive into, especially for my listeners, because you know I, right, I tend to focus on thyroid and hormones, and I'm driving home the point that if your thyroid's not optimized, you're not really going to have a metabolism. It doesn't matter how low your calories go or what diet you do. But then we get away from the counting of calories and the importance of energy in and energy out. So can you expand on just all the the myths and and the false beliefs that we have in this space that we're in, where people get so locked down, they kind of forget about basic energy expenditure?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to point out would be, you know, with regards to the audience here is, you know, calories and energy, and energy balance don't exist in isolation of hormones or, or thyroid, for example, they're all interconnected. So, for example, the reason people with thyroid problems have difficulty losing weight is if you're a low thyroid, it will drop your basal metabolic rate. So, for example, I think the literature, the largest drop I've observed is a 25% drop in BMR. So, for example, if somebody, say, you know, 1500 BMR that might drop it by, you know, like over 200 calories per day. So it significantly impacts, you know, their total calorie burn for the day. And beyond that, so that's just your basal metabolic rate, which is only one aspect of daily energy expenditure. You know, you also have your physical activity, which consists of exercise, which everyone understands that. And I think most people, when they think of physical activity, just think of exercise, but actually the bigger portion of physical activity Is your non exercise activity thermogenesis, which is basically your unconscious movements throughout the day, fidgeting, pacing, just things that you're not cognizant of. That actually typically, for most of us, makes up a bigger portion of our energy expenditure per day. And if your thyroid is low, you're not going to feel as good. And it's very likely that you're actually going to make less subconscious movements throughout the day. And so while you may go exercise and do the same exercise you usually do, you're more likely not going to do a lot of unconscious movement or you're gonna you know because you don't feel as good right so I think the point being like well you know and we've there's research to show that meat that that subconscious movement uh, is modifiable up to like 500 calories a day so I think I saw a study where like a ten percent reduction in body weight uh led to a like four to five hundred calorie drop in meat per day so you combine you know, like say, you know, four or 500 calories plus two or 300 calorie reduction from BMR. I mean, now you're up to, you know, a five to 700 per day reduction in total energy expenditure, possibly, you know, due to some of these things. So I think people think they hear calories in versus calories out and they go, oh, I tracked my calories and I didn't lose weight. Well, that's like saying I kept a budget and didn't save money. You can keep a budget and still not save money You can also save money without keeping a budget, but a budget can be a great tool for saving money. But I don't think anybody would argue that in order to save money, you need to earn more than you spend. And by the same token, if you did not lose weight during a period of time, like I say, I'm very careful with how I word this because people tend to weigh in sporadically, which is another big miss that people make because people like don't trust the process. And so they do something for a week or two and like, oh, it's not working. When in reality, they like waited one day in the morning, one day in the afternoon and didn't standardize anything. And they're like, oh, look, I gained half a pound while they're if they would have waited every single day in the morning after urinating, their average would have dropped like two pounds. But since they weighed sporadically, it said they gained half a pound. go, like, oh, see, I didn't lose weight. You know, uh, calories in, calories out it doesn't work. Again, that's like saying gravity doesn't work. gravity That's like saying, well, there's planes, so gravity doesn't work. No, gravity still works. The the point being is if you didn't lose weight, and I was talking about an average, so over several weeks on average, then you weren't in a calorie deficit. Now, you may have been what you thought was a calorie deficit or what should have been a calorie deficit, but if you didn't lose weight, it was not a calorie deficit. I think that's the point to make, and I think a lot of people attach judgment to that, and that's why there's so much pushback against it. They're saying, well, you're saying I'm lazy or you're saying I'm a glutton. It's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, like, that's like saying, well, if you don't save money, you must just be, you know, popping bottles at the club. No, not necessarily. And I do think, you know, the the problem is, is I'm, I'm talking about on a granular level, the mechanistic aspect of weight gain or loss, energy balance or calorie balance. But just telling people to eat less, move more, It's not really necessarily a helpful message. It's true. It is true. But that's like telling somebody, well, if you want to save money, just earn more than you spend. There, you have that information. So go do it. Like it's, it's, you know, there's a reason that I think it's something like 70 or 80% of Americans can't write a check for $5,000 if they had to. Much like energy, people on average underreport their calorie intake by 30 to 50%. People also underreport their debt by about 100 to 150% you know, there's a lot of, I use financial examples a lot because I feel like they're a little bit more, it's a little bit more intuitive for people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these things, I mean, there's a lot of parallels between these things. So anyways, you know, the point being, if you want to lose weight, you have to be in a calorie deficit. However, how you get to that calorie deficit is by modifying your habits and behaviors typically.
0: Yeah. So a couple so many things that you said that I want to expand on. So with the the NEAT, I saw a study, and this was even before you were on Huberman, I saw that study come out about the the soleus movement, and you're going to know more details about it than I do, but just the, the people that spontaneously, without thinking about it, do that, that tapping of the foot that, you know, you're sitting at your desk and I'm doing it now just because I'm thinking about it, moving my heel up and down and contracting the soleus muscle, but Part of that study, now I can't remember whether they said it in or this was discussed afterwards, that you can't consciously produce meat. You can't think like, I am going to sit here and tap my foot to burn more calories. It has to be just a part of you who you are spontaneous, is that right?
1: Yeah, so it, it may seem a little bit pedantic in terms of the definition, but it is important because people say, well, I'm going to go out for a walk and get my knee up. No, if you're consciously doing it, it is exercise. It is not neat meat is unconscious so people will say people will kind of dismiss meat you know and and say well it's physical activity you know that, that whatever you know they get hung up on my metabolism my metabolic rate which actually if you look at the data on metabolic rate when we first started examining obesity we thought oh well people who are obese will have a slow metabolism that will and then we started looking at and if anything people who are obese on average have a faster metabolism than people who are lean Uh, Now, once you standardize for their lean body mass, it ends up being basically the same as lean people. So per kilogram of lean body mass, it's very similar. Um, But they don't have a slow metabolism, on average at least. What tends to be much bigger regulator is physical activity, meat like you said, and once again, they have shown that people who tend to be obese resistant, the obese resistant phenotype, tend to just spontaneously increase their movement without realizing it if they overeat you may have seen some of these people who like when they eat a heavy meal they get like sweaty and they start fidgeting and you know like that's that's a real thing in fact there was a study back in 1995 I think it was 1995 by I want to say Levine and they overfed people by I think a thousand calories per day over like an eight-week period I want to say and I think the average weight gain was something like five kilograms or something like that. I I could be butchering it a little bit, but it's something around that ballpark. And it went as high as like eight kilograms. And there was one person who only gained 0.8 kilograms. So it was this huge spread. And what they found is the person who only gained 0.8 kilograms basically just started compensating by spontaneously moving more. They didn't realize they were doing it. People who are obese resistant tend to compensate for increases in energy intake by just becoming spontaneously more active whereas people who are obese prone tend to not increase their spontaneous activity even when they overfeed so you know I, I think a lot of people will hear that and they still get hung up on the word physical activity and they think exercise it's not exercise if you are consciously doing it it is not meat okay so if you say i'm going to go out for a walk I'm gonna take the stairs instead of the escalator. Hey, it's great, it's contributing to your physical activity, but it does not fall into the category of meat. Meat is not
0: modifiable consciously. It's just who you are as a person. Do you fidget? Yeah. Do you not fidget? Or are you one of those guys that that yeah. sweat? And we've all seen that, like the bodybuilders, right? Back in the day, who they're like they're eating their chicken and the broccoli and their rice, and they're sweating up a storm. Hmm. Now, kind of going back to that, right? When you and I were competing and you probably And I've heard you talk about eating clean. So I'm going to use that term very sparingly, but I know that you control what you eat. And I dove into the carbon app, which I love, and I've been recommending it to many, many, many of my patients and listeners because it's just so streamlined. Like I hate my fitness pal. I hate those tracking apps. I've stayed away from them until I stumbled upon your carbon app. And I was like, this is really cool shit because you have in there already loaded things that I eat, like the Siete almond flour tortilla shells, you have designs for health, whole body collagen in there. I'm like, boom, done. But with that app, how do you determine, so let's say my patients are using it and we want them obviously to lose weight. I'm working on their thyroid and hormones, but we really have to dial in their calories. How do you determine what the the target caloric set point is in including the deficit in order to get that person to lose weight and account for what if they have a lower BMR because their thyroid's all jacked up?
1: I'll have to speak generally because it's a proprietary algorithm that I helped write. Right. Um, but essentially, the first step is the app is going to try and estimate your total daily energy expenditure. Now, we have a pretty accurate calculation, but it's just a calculation. There's There are people who will fall outside that, no question. Which is why the real benefit of the app is being consistent with it and checking in each week, logging your food, and then logging your body weight daily. Because if you aren't losing the amount of weight the app predicts that you should, the app is going to sense that and make adjustments to your nutrition recommendations as you go along in order to get you in line with that. So, uh, you know, a lot of people when it first came out, they said, "Well, you know, uh, I did it, and these calories are too high for me." And I'm like, my first response, or they're too low for me. And my first response would be, well, if you already knew what to eat, why are you using the app? So, so, you know, it's like, uh, and I've had this with coaching. Why? This is wrong. Okay, well, then why did you hire me? You know, like, if you're just going to tell me it's wrong, if you already know better than me, then don't hire me. But beyond that, the real value in the app is the fact that it will adjust based on how you progress. So the first thing it's going to try and do is determine your total daily energy expenditure. Once it has that calculated, then it's going to look at, in terms of weight loss, what rate of loss have you selected? So basically, uh, during the sign-up process, it's going to give you a range that you can choose of weight to lose, and that is based off a percentage of your total body weight. So a lot of people will say, well, why can't I select more than you know 1.7 pounds per week or something like that? Well, it's based off of your total body weight. Like if you're a heavier person, you're going to be able to select a higher rate of weight loss. But if you're a lighter person, you're not gonna be able to select as much weight loss because it's gonna increase your risk of lean mass loss. And we know how detrimental that is for keeping weight off, preventing it from coming back on and your uh, BMR. So we're gonna really try and maintain that, that, um, that lean mass. Uh, and obviously, so once we have total energy expenditure or at least our estimation of it, and then we have the rate of loss, that gives us an idea of, okay, well, if we're trying to lose this much per week, That corresponds to about, you know, a certain calorie deficit. So then we take that calorie deficit, subtract it from the total daily energy expenditure, and that's how we get, you know, kind of the calorie amount.
0: Okay. And it's eye-opening too. I mean, I I love that you have that all built in to the algorithm. And the one thing that I recognized when I tried it before I recommended it to my patients is... It is eye-opening when you truly log everything that goes into your mouth and you're using an app that is so smart to really pick up on. It's not just you going to Google and saying, well, I think a chicken breast is, you know, a hundred and some calorie or whatever. You already have that preloaded in there. And wow, I thought that I was eating X amount of calories, but I'm really eating this much. I thought I was taking in this much protein, but it's lower than what I thought. And that's the biggest thing, I think, because so many people, like you said, they'll get frustrated and they'll hit that end of the week or first first two weeks and say, well, I'm doing everything right. I should be seeing more progress. But when you look at it right in front of you and you're faced with that hard truth, maybe you're not like maybe you are taking in way more than you even think in your head.
1: Yeah, I've had so many of those messages, you know, that that's in line with the scientific information. You know, if we look at research data, if you It depends on the demographic, but most people underestimate their caloric intake by about 30 to 50%. Obese women tend to underestimate the most in terms of demographics. They're like 50 to 70% underestimation. Obese men are like, I think it's like 40 to 60%. And then like your average person is like around 30, 40%. A lean person tends to only under report by like 20%. But even dieticians underreport by like 10%. So, you know, that is a very, very normal thing. And I think people really hate to hear that data because they go, Why? I'm not a liar. I'm not saying you're lying. I don't think most people are lying about it. I think we look at things through rose-colored glasses. And I think most people have a really, really poor idea of portion sizes. Yep. If you want to be depressed, go weigh out a serving of ice cream. Go weigh out a serving of peanut butter. Go weigh out a serving of cereal. And even if you're using volume measurements, well, I measure, you know, I do, you know, uh, uh, I weigh a, a, you know, three quarter cup of cereal, go weigh it. I promise you it weighs more than the serving size. If you do a two tablespoons of peanut butter, I promise you you're eating double of what the serving size is. And so it's very, very easy to overestimate. So, you know, I don't expect people to like use the scale for the rest of their life. You know, that's for most people, it's not a sustainable lifestyle. But I will say, weighing and tracking every single thing you put in your mouth for a few weeks is a really useful experiment. Just like you know, monitoring all your expenses for a month is very useful to see where your money is going. And it's very eye-opening. And I'll tell you, I did a PhD in nutrition. The most I ever learned about nutrition was the first week I ever tracked everything when I was 19 years old back in 2001. And I really don't want to hear about how hard it is from people because all I had back then was a book, the complete book of food counts about that thick, and I would have to flip to the page that the food was on, find it, look at the serving size, then look at how much I ate, divide by the serving size, multiply the macros by that, and then do the calculation by hand. So I just don't really wanna hear how difficult it is when you can just go to our app, scan the food label, punch in how many grams you had, and it's done.
0: Yeah. No, I love the app. I've reached out to you guys about mass, mass buying, you know, memberships and subscriptions because I want my people doing this. That way they can't come back and say, and, and, you know, granted some do need a bump up in their T3 or an increase in their testosterone or whatever. But I think too many times they go right to that. Like I'm not losing weight. So therefore increase my thyroid medication. It's like, well, what are you actually taking in? So let's get that down pat. And then, if you're telling me per that app that you should be losing and you're not, then let's do some labs and really look deeper and see if a med change is needed. So, I love that. I was going to bring it up at the end, but I brought it up now because it really is eye opening and it pertains to our, our calorie talk because you're going to get it right there in your face, right there. Yeah.
1: Yep. And, you know, I, again, I think I've had so many people say, Oh, well, I, you know, I, I can call one galaxy in particular. She's like, I'm eating 1,600 calories a day. I'm not losing weight, and she was doing volume measurements. I said, "Do me a favor. Just weigh for one week. Weigh every single thing that you put in your mouth." And it didn't even take a week. Like two days later, she came back. She's like, "Oh my god, I'm eating 2,700 calories a day." So yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's crazy. And she was tracking. She was just using volume measurements, and just her switching to weighing it, she realized that she was drastically underestimating her caloric intake.
0: I'll say that's huge. That's huge. Okay. We're going to move on to the debate portion now. Okay. Insulin, insulin. Wayne, yep. I, Lane, I see so many people that are insulin resistant and mm-hmm. I, I have PCOS, I guess have had, I don't know. I'm kind of over it now, but I'm not insulin resistant anymore, but I know what that's like to be insulin resistant and be like, I can't lose weight no matter what I do, even if I am tracking. And when I eat a carbohydrate it's like I've gained 10 pounds. If I look sideways at a brownie, it's like I gained 10 pounds. So, can we get into the insulin component? So,
1: if we look at the research data, there's one meta-analysis that assessed, you know, non-so insulin resistant versus non-insulin resistant. Is there a difference in weight loss when they put them under the same level, the same caloric restriction? They did not see a difference. So. Now I'm not holding out the idea that there could be individual differences. Now what you tend to see is people, and I don't know if you were weighing and tracking precisely at the time or anything like that, but people, so type 2 diabetics or people who are insulin resistant or people with PCOS, uh, they have shown that they're more likely to underreport their caloric intake. And again, not saying that they're lying or anything like that, but just people who are very poor estimators of portion size. With when it comes to PCOS. There was one study that showed a reduction in BMR uh, with people who have PCOS, but there was about a half dozen studies after that that did did not replicate that. They showed that there was actually no difference. So right now, the way the data suggests that insulin resistance doesn't seem to negatively affect weight loss efforts. And if you think about mechanistically, so if you're insulin resistant or low insulin sensitivity, you're insulin resistant muscle tissue, but you're also insulin resistant in fat tissue as well. So that's one of the reasons that blood glucose goes up is because you have difficulty putting it into fat cells. In fact, they show lean people, their adipose tissue is actually more insulin sensitive. So if you think about adipose tissue, it's kind of like you have these fat cells and typically the way you lose or gain body fat is those cells expand or shrink. The bigger they get, the more resistant they get to insulin. But it means that basically you have uh, glucose that starts to spill over in the bloodstream as well as uh, free fatty acids. But that's because they just can't put any more into adipose. So actually one of the treat this is gonna sound crazy. One of the treatments for type two diabetes is sulfonylureas, which basically are PPAR gamma agonists which their mechanism is they create more fat cells. So now you have more small adipocytes to put glucose and free fatty acids into, and it it has the effect of dropping your blood glucose and your free fatty acids, but now you have more fat mass. So if you're insulin sensitive, you're also insulin sensitive in fat cells. So in reality, if somebody is insulin resistant, if anything, they should typically have an easier time losing weight mechanistically only from the perspective that it's just hard to put anything more into the adipocyte. But again, I can hold out that like when we talk about studies, we report averages. I recognize that not everybody's the same. But I will say that, you know, when people, people will use terminology like everybody's different. Well, if you look at our genetics, we're like 99.9% identical if you're a human. So is it possible? Yes, there are genetic polymorphisms on genes. There are people with low BMRs. You know, there are, you know, genetic abnormalities, but for the most part, if you look at the averages, it doesn't tend to be different. If you put people on the same level of court restriction, whether they're insulin resistant or not, they tend to lose about the same amount of weight.
0: Well, so you have a type two diabetic and we know we'll, we'll go one step further. We'll go into type two diabetes, not just insulin resistance. Uh-huh. And we know that their pancreas, because they've been eating like garbage for so long, and there's probably a genetic component as well. Their pancreas is pumping out more insulin than what is actually necessary to take care of the blood glucose spike. So now you have excess insulin and I've heard you say before, it is the fat storage hormone. We know insulin is a storage hormone. So with that excess insulin, isn't that why we see that cycle happen with type two diabetes where they will pump out excess insulin, get fatter, become more insulin resistant?
1: Remember why it's pumping out excess insulin. It's because the fat cells are not as insulin sensitive. So in order to get the same effect of fat storage in adipose, you actually need more insulin. So it's still, it's not like, okay, you have more insulin, so it's causing more fat storage. It's you need more insulin to cause the same amount of fat storage. So remember, it can always be the reverse causality, which it is in this case. And if we look at the studies, like let's, if that were true, if insulin was the culprit for obesity, then semiglutide could not function the way it does. So semiglutide, for those who aren't familiar, all these new anti-obesity treatments that seem to be extremely effective, average people lose about 15 to 17% of their body weight when they take these. In the short term, For it raises meal level, meal insulin secretion pretty substantially, actually. So these, are, these uh, drugs are GLP-1 mimetics, and GLP-1 has the effect of raising insulin. Now... In the, the kind of pushback on that from the mostly from the low carb community has been, well, look at their long term levels of insulin. They actually drop. Well, the their long term, their basal levels of insulin drop because they're losing weight. So over the long period of time, they lose weight, they become more insulin sensitive. But in the short term, it raises insulin. So I think a lot of people get really hung up on insulin and insulin is more of a passive player in this game. And if you look at like, let's take two extreme diets, like low carb, high fat and uh, low fat, high carb, right? Low fat, high carb, you got a lot of insulin available or more insulin than low carb, high fat. Uh, But one thing people don't realize, so if you do a low carb diet, you will burn a lot of fat. Okay, Your, your fat burning will go up. But people equate fat burning with the loss of body fat and they're actually two different things. Fat burning is one part of fat, the loss of body fat equation. The other part is the amount of fat you store. Much like the the net deposition of protein, your net protein balance is the balance between synthesis and degradation. The net deposition or loss of body fat is the balance between fat storage and fat burning or fat oxidation. Most people focus on the fat oxidation portion, but here's why the fat uh, storage is important. We don't really tend to store dietary carbohydrate as fat. There was a study back in the early 2000s where they did a metabolic tracer, which is basically uh, they can essentially tag nutrients uh, for lack of a better term and see where they wind up. And they found that of the, so they overfed, I think it was women by like a thousand calories per day. And they found that they stored, I think it was something like 272 grams of fat per day on average during this overfeeding study in adipose. Of that body fat, four grams originated as dietary carbohydrate. So your body doesn't really store dietary carbohydrate as fat, it stores dietary fat as fat. Now, if you eat high carb, you raise insulin, which can drive fat into fat cells. Right. But if you're eating high carb, low fat, you don't have much fat available. So if you eat high carb, low fat, you have low amounts of fat burning, but you also have low amounts of fat storage. If you eat low carb, high fat, you have high amounts of fat burning, but you also have high amounts of fat storage. The net effect of losing or gaining body fat will depend on energy balance. So that, in that aspect, insulin is much more of a passive player than a lot of people think.
0: Okay. so. One thing I do agree with you on, and I've heard you talk about this, I'm tying this into the insulin talk and what you said about low carb dieting is I see a lot of people jump on the, we'll say keto because that's the word, the keto bandwagon and go really low carb, really high fat. And that is usually where I will see the weight gain. That's where the mostly women will come to me and say, I did keto and I gained weight. And so we know that that is excess calories in the form of fat because they way overdid the fat. They're doing their bulletproof coffee and they're chugging, you know, lard basically all throughout yeah. the day, eating bacon and pork rinds. So I, I completely agree with you there because I've seen it. I've done it to myself as an experiment, you know, just adding that little bit of extra heavy whipping cream in my coffee because it's so good. Well, the scale went up. So I completely agree with you there, but is there a a place in all of the coaching that you do and all the people that you've, you've trained and coached, is there a place where you say, maybe for you, we got to pull back on those carbs, focus on protein because that produces more thermogenesis and kind of balance out the fat, but maybe we do pull back on the carbs a little bit.
1: Well, I mean, we pull back on carbs just to create a calorie deficit because we uh, will pull back on fats as well. We, the way we do things and the way our app does things is we start with protein always. So we're always focusing on protein because like you said, protein is thermogenic. It's more satiating calorie per calorie. It also has effects on lean body mass sparing. So we always start with protein. So if you're going to eat high protein diet, but you're going to create a calorie deficit, you have to come, you have to get the calorie deficit from somewhere. You can get it from fats, you can get it from carbohydrate, or you can get it from a little bit of both. So typically we'll start our clients and, you know, high, higher high protein or high for our competitors or those who are in the fitness industry we usually like try to get them to calm down on the protein because we have people who are you know eating 250 to 300 grams of protein a day whereas your average person you know looks at over 100 grams of protein and says how the hell am i supposed to eat that right so for our average person we'll try to get them to pump up their protein to pretty much what they'll tolerate and be consistent with and then we'll look at the remaining calories because again like if we like, let's say we're putting somebody on a you know, 1500 calorie diet or 1600 calorie diet, and we're gonna get 150 grams of protein. Well, that's 600 calories gone. So now we've got a a thousand calories left over. Well, where are we gonna distribute those? We can distribute them to carbohydrates and fats, right? So usually what we'll ask them is, hey, what do you, do you have a preference? Would you prefer to eat more savory foods? Would you prefer more, you know, sweeter foods? Do you prefer a mix of both? Like what is your preference? And then we'll distribute based on that. So certainly part of a calorie deficit, like we're gonna restrict carbohydrate just by default because we don't want dietary fat to be too low because there's problems with you know very low fat diets. Um and by the same token, we're typically also restricting dietary fat as well. But how much we're restricting just depends on the person, their daily energy expenditure, and what their targets are.
0: Right. Well, I'm glad you mentioned protein because I'm I'm the same as you. Let's do protein first. Yep. And I think that you go by the one gram per pound of lean body mass, but I've also heard you cite some studies that show that it's even safe to go up to four grams per pound of lean body mass, which I think per would kilogram. be way too much. What's that? Per kilogram. Per kilogram. Oh, that changes it. Okay, <laughs> that changes it. So what is your whole, protein? Four, four grams per pound would be intense. <laughs> that'd be, yeah, I was going to say that'd be, that, that would be up in like the 200, 400. Oh my God, way too much. So what do you guys normally do with your well normal average everyday clients and then your competitors? Because even my average everyday clients, like you said, the women, they can barely get in 50, 60 grams. They think that's, that's a lot.
1: Yeah, so usually we're targeting at least 1.6 grams per kilogram of lean mass. And then, you know, if people can go up to 2.4 grams per kilogram of lean mass, we'll, we'll try to go there. Uh, for competitors, you know, it's probably more like 2 to 3 grams per kilogram of lean mass, mm-hmm. uh, just because we are trying to leverage that satiety and thermogenesis as much as possible. But yeah, I mean, obviously, for some people, that's a really high amount of protein, even at 1.6 grams per kilogram of lean mass. Or, you know, some people say, well, I don't know how to get my lean mass. Well, then do it based on your goal body weight, right? And the reason we do it that way is simply because if you are somebody who's obese, you know, and you're 150 kilos, you don't need 400 grams of protein. Like that's just overkill, right? Right. So if you're doing it based off your uh, ideal weight or your goal weight, uh, it's going to be much more uh, reflective of your actual protein requirements because protein requirements are almost exclusively based on lean body mass.
0: Yeah, no, I'm glad you cl- see this is why I love you. Your brain is just insane. Um, <laughs> it just is, I mean- the, the, you There's have, a lot of stuff it, around there. You have like an encyclopedia of studies in there that you can just pull from. It's just amazing, it's just amazing.
1: <laughs> I actually, somebody said uh, that I was like a, a computer the other day, it was funny. Yeah. But only when it comes to this stuff, God forbid you ask me to change a tire, I'll be, should I look?
0: That's right. We all have our skills. It's totally fine.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was. I always joked that if I had to learn something else, it's just going to start spitting out math or something, you know?
0: Yeah, pretty much. I can see that. I can see that happening. All right. I'm going to keep picking that brain too. I love bringing experts on and, and having them speak from their place of genius and having it possibly back or negate, but possibly back something that I've been saying. And I think it helps with, my patients, my listeners, when they hear me say something to hear you say it as well, then they go, okay, so now two people are saying it. (laughs) So I I love having this. I just love having this discussion. So we talked about protein and I want to tie that into this OMAD phase. I, oh my God, it drives me absolutely crazy. So here we are trying to get people to eat more protein, especially women, because we know that they, they think that one chicken breast per day is their the amount of protein. They think peanut butter is a source of protein. So yeah. then we have everybody jumping into one meal a day, you know, doing uh, these extended fasts, one meal a day. There is no way in hell that you're going to get in the amount of protein in one meal, nor do I even believe that the body could handle. If I ate 120 grams of protein, my body's not handling. If I ate 100 grams of protein, my body's not handling it in one meal. So can you please expand and give your thoughts on this? OMAD oh, mad fad that is out there.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, your body, you know, I, I, I'm probably a little bit pedantic in terms of like terminology. But a lot of people say well, you can only absorb a certain amount of protein. No, no, you'll, you'll absorb all of it. But what it gets used for is quite a different story. So, if we're talking about like what's useful for, you know, lean mass gain or, um, you know, those sorts of things or muscle building with dietary fat, you kind of have unlimited storage in adipose. Carbohydrate, you still have a decent amount of storage with your liver and muscle glycogen, You know, somewhere around four to 500 grams. But with dietary protein, I mean, other than a really small amino acid pool, I mean, I'm talking very small, your body doesn't really have a storage form of protein. And some people say, well, sure it does. Your lean mass is a storage form of protein. That's like saying my house is a storage form of wood. Yeah, you could get wood out of it, but that's not why you built the house. Right. Because of that, and because we know there is a anabolic cap per meal where just pushing in more protein does not further, further enhance muscle protein synthesis, and this is really my wheelhouse, that thesis sitting right back there is about muscle protein synthesis. Nice. You know, anywhere from like 20 to 40 grams of protein, depending on the individual's lean mass, depending on the quality of this protein source, anywhere from 20 to 40 grams, usually maximizes that response. You talk about lower quality sources like plant proteins. You know, you're going to be up around that 40 gram. How about higher quality sources like a, you know, a whey protein. You're going to be close to that 20 grams. Now, obviously, if you're talking about you know somebody who's 50 kilos of lean mass versus somebody who's 100 kilos of lean mass, yes, it's going to change things. But in general, 20 to 40 grams kind of encapsulates that. So. If you're only doing that once, you're only getting that one increase in muscle protein synthesis. And that increase, at least based on our data and the data I published, is only about three hours long. So if you're only having that one spike per day, you're not really optimizing your or you're not really leveraging your maximal response for muscle animalism. Now, I will say if your goal is to like if your goal is to be the most muscular human you can be. Then you want to have multiple doses, obviously, like four to five per day. Now, you can certainly overdo it. There's also research that kind of indicates that if you do too frequent of feedings, you kind of desensitize the muscle to that to that effect. It's called the muscle full effect or the refractory effect. Uh, we also documented that in one of our studies. And um, But if you do it too infrequently, obviously, you aren't hitting it enough. So what I'll say about fasting or OMAD or any of these kind of time-restricted feeding sort of things is... They're not magic. They have not been shown to be superior when you equate weekly calories to a daily calorie restriction. Now, if they help you, some people say, you know what? If I do that during my fasting period, I don't really get hungry. So it just helps me reduce my calories. Great, awesome. And if your goal is not to not be the, you know, you're not worried about being, you know, the most muscular person you can be, then maybe it's a great tool. But there's nothing magical about it. And the other thing I've heard is, well, I'm fasting for longevity. There is no human evidence that fasting is superior for longevity compared to just normal calorie restriction. Now, do I think that it could be useful? Yeah, it's a useful tool for some people, but there was actually just a study published just this last like couple months ago that looked at a cohort of people comparing one meal a day versus three meals a day and actually showed that the people eating one meal per day uh, had a 40% greater risk of mortality or no, sorry, 30% greater risk of mortality compared to people eating three meals a day, and a 80% greater risk of cardiovascular mortality compared to people eating three meals a day. Now, that being said, there could be uh, a bias there in terms of people who are eating three meals a day may just have other lifestyle habits that are healthier, but they did look at BMI between the groups. The BMI's weren't different, so there wasn't a, a difference in fat mass likely. What I would say is I I don't, I'm not ready to say that one meal a day is going to, you know, make you, is going to kill you early. Right. But it certainly doesn't seem to keep you alive longer. If you're doing, I always say people, when people say they're doing fasting, I say, why are you doing it? Well, I don't feel hungry. It helps me limit my calories. Bravo. Great. Awesome. You know, go for it. But if it's, I'm going to live as long as I can, uh, the data is pretty underwhelming on that, despite what social media hypesters will tell you.
0: And then there's the, the stressor too. I mean, I know some hermetic stress is good for the body, but when the whole fasting craze first came out, of course, you know, you try it on yourself, experiment. And I would be gritting my teeth, trying to make it till, cause I had it set, right? Type A, 2 p.m. is when I'm going to have my first meal. That's it. And it didn't matter. I was, wasn't listening to my own hunger signals. So then that created a stressor on the body, increased my cortisol, increased my blood glucose. I was kind of just defeating the entire purpose of the fast because I was grinning and bearing it through the whole fast period that I was trying to reach. So there's that aspect of it too.
1: Well, I think for a lot of people, they use fasting as kind of a, a way to justify basically like binge eating later, right? And instead of focusing on whole food, minimally processed, you know, stuff, they're you know downing cookies and ice cream because, it's, well, it's it's in my feeding period, you know. Right. And it's like, well, you kind of defeating the purpose of this, just like. Vegans who are doing, you know, plant-based for health, but then they're eating vegan mac and cheese and vegan chicken wings and all this kind of stuff. And keto people who are doing keto, but they're doing keto ice cream, which, by the way, has more calories than the regular stuff. You're better off just eating the regular stuff. So there's a right way to do these diets and a wrong way to do these diets. And, and again, it's important to understand why they all work. They all work. If they work, they work because they put you in a calorie deficit, not because there's some kind of magic associated with it.
0: Right. Exactly. Now, were we doing it wrong back in the day? Well, now I don't know how old you are, but back in my day of bodybuilding, it was the six meals a day. So, were we doing anything wrong back then, or was, or we, were, were we kind of on point? So, I'm, I'm 41. I was born in uh, 1981.
1: So, I I got into bodybuilding circa like the year 2000. Same, you know, that's when you ate eight meals a day and yep. you know and boost your metabolism and that sort of thing. I mean, we were wrong about that, but do I think six meals a day is a bad thing? I think it's kind of overkill and it can be a little bit restrictive for your lifestyle because you know it was like when I was in college, I couldn't go anywhere without putting a protein part in my pocket. Or in my case, I'd you know cook up some chicken breast, put it in a Ziploc bag and stuff it in my cargo shorts. You know what I mean? Yep. <laughs> I'll never forget my uh I was on a plane and I pulled a chicken breast out of my pocket. My grandfather was with me and he's like he was just mind blown that I like took a chicken breast on a plane, you know, out of your like, pocket. Oh, gotta get yeah. that, gotta get that, you know, amino acid IV drip. So yeah, I think it's overkill. I think three to five high quality protein meals per day if you're hitting your overall protein target, I think that's the most important thing. I think that there's many different ways to skin a cat. And I think where most of the debates are, are in the margins, you know? I tell people like when it comes to nutrition and training, I'm like, you're worried about like meal timing and like the type of carbohydrate and you're not even consistent with your diet. Like you're yep. literally stepping over $100 bills to pick up pennies. Or or they're like, well, should I do leg press or hack squat or this? I'm like, try to do it? You know, 10 reps or five reps? You don't even train hard. Like you're, you're worried about your rep range. Like I've watched you, you don't even train hard. Because people, I, I have this sometimes, I'm going to post on this. You cannot out-science hard training. So people will send me like some IFBB pro and they'll be like, you know, look at him, Lane, like, you say do full range of motion and he's doing partial range of motion. Look how big he is. And I'm like, he trains hard. It makes up for a lot and he's done it for 20 years. So yeah, it may still not be optimal, but if you just train really freaking hard for a really long period of time, you'll grow some muscle, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think a lot of people miss that. And they get really hung up on dumb stuff that's like less than 1% of what actually makes gains. And I, I tell people now, I'm like, When it comes to diet or training, mindset is way more important than any of these X's and O's stuff that we debate over.
0: Well, expand on that a little bit because I want to go into the the lifting heavy shit philosophy. It's what I tell my women to do because all these women are scared about getting big and bulky so we can break that down. But what do you mean about mindset?
1: Yeah, so let me just take that from the top. That's like saying, you know, I don't want to climb in my car because I'm afraid it'll be a NASCAR driver. Don't worry, you won't. I've spent my entire adult life trying to get too big. And now I just basically look like an athletic guy in a shirt, okay? (laughs) So you're not gonna get too big. There's I've come across maybe a handful of females who grew enough muscle that they were like, whoa, I kinda wanna back off, you know? Yeah, so I I think this idea of like worrying about being too big, unless you get on anabolic steroids, you're gonna be fine, okay? And by the way, if you get to the point where you're happy with your muscle mass, just don't train as hard. Right. Easy, easy. <laughs> That's like, you know, if you're in a NASCAR and you're worried about going too fast, just don't press the pedal down so far. Right. <laughs> There's that. And, but the, the real problem is most people, and we actually have scientific data to validate this. Most people don't know how to train. hard. They don't know how to push themselves. They put them push themselves up to a certain level of discomfort and don't push through that. And that's one of the real, you know, one of the things I have to caveat a lot is I'll tell people, you don't have to train to failure to make, like to get the most gains. The research shows very clearly, you can train within a few reps of failure and still get equal equivalent gains and probably not fatigue yourself as much and risk, you know, impeding your recovery. The problem is if you've never trained to failure, you actually don't know what it's like. Right. And I have... I'll give you some examples. I mean, I've squatted like 480 pounds for 14 reps before. And when I finished with that was absolute failure to the point where I actually couldn't re-rack it because I couldn't fully lock out my lower back. I'd have somebody come over and like help me. Mm-hmm. When I got done, I laid down on the ground. I didn't move for 20 minutes. I was like, my heart rate was over 200 beats per minute and I could not move. Okay. Yeah. That's training to failure. This whole you know, most people like do a lift and then they go, well, that was hard. Okay. I was, you know, close to failure. And i always tell people when I'm five reps or six reps from failure, it feels hard. Yeah. Okay. Now. And if we look at the research data in intermediates and beginners, they look, there was a recent study that looked at if they have participants self-select weights, what weights on average, they self-select. And it was about 50% of the one rep max. Now, if you're going to select 50% of your one rep max, you can still grow muscle, but you probably, ne- you'd probably need to do like 20 to 30 reps to do it, okay? And most people, on average, they were getting like 10, 15 reps, something like that. So not even close to failure. If you're not right. within five reps of failure, you're really not touching that optimal level of you know activating muscle fibers. So there was another study that also had participants rate their RPE. Now, when I say RPE, RPE is a scale of 10 when it comes to resistance training. Now, an RPE of 10 means you could not have done another rep, okay? RPE of nine means you could have done one more rep. Two, you could have done two more reps and so on and so forth. Or sorry, RPE of eight would have been you could have done two more reps. RPE of seven, you could have done three more reps and so on and so forth. The problem is if you never trained a failure, you probably don't know how to estimate that very well. So they had participants rate their they're with, they're within set. So while they're training, they'd have them do a few reps, how hard was that, RPE eight, whatever. And then they actually like, basically they turned up like heavy metal music and were like yelling at the participants and like getting them to go to absolute failure. They overestimated their RPE on average by five. So meaning if they said, oh, that's an RPE of nine, they got like six more reps after that. Mm-hmm. So most people don't know where their failure point is. And if they've never pushed themselves to that, they don't understand it. And what. Like I get accused of performance enhancing drugs all the time. And I'll tell people, and I i don't have a problem saying this. You go in the gym, I'm the hardest training person in the gym. And it, it's not close. Like i am that's not me being cocky. It's just right.
0: true. just is, and yeah.
1: Like I, I, I've i had people, like uh, I train uh, sometimes in the crunch around here and I'll, I'll literally have somebody every week come up and say, you train so fucking hard. And I'm like, yeah. And that's still like RPE seven or eight, right? So now imagine doing that for 23 years, 24 years consistently. The longest I've ever taken off was after world World championships this past year, I took eight days off. That's the longest I've ever taken off in 24 years. So imagine if you applied yourself to something for 24 years, consistently training really, really hard, I think you'd be impressed with what you can accomplish.
0: I would agree. I would agree. And there is something to that yelling at you with heavy metal. I mean, we, you know, we did that oh, yeah. for powerlifting to get to your next PR, you know, it's like uh, it well, looks there's research
1: data show that music is a performance enhancer. So there's research data to show that music will give about a 10% performance boost. So will uh, other people yelling at you uh actually having the opposite sex uh, in the same room boost performance in research right. studies. that that's why I'm not too ashamed to admit I go to a gym because I like to have an atmosphere.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It does. It, it does just push you. I mean, we've all done the the COVID garage training, but yes, I mean, gains and overall physiques are much better now that we're back in the gym. They just are. So what about menopausal women? Because I have a large group of, of menopausal listeners and there's been a lot of, I don't know what you want to call them, train celebrity trainers or whatever that will tout their programs to Train based on your cycle or train differently if you're a menopausal woman than if you're not a menopausal woman. What is your take on that?
1: There's not really much data to back it up. There's a lot of theoretical stuff. What I will say is it's probably a good idea to auto regulate your training in general. So, I I mean, I've had women who are clients who'll say, I'm on my period this week, should I go lighter? And I'll say, Well, if you go in and you feel like crap and you're performing terribly in your warm ups, then go lighter. But I've also had women hit PRs during their cycle. So I'm much more of a fan of just like not pre-planning it and just simply taking it as it comes. And yeah, if you feel terrible, you know, just go in and and just go through the motions. That's fine. Like, that's fine to, you know, do a taper or reduce your intensity, you know, auto-regulate been shown repeatedly that auto-regulation is probably the way to go. Um, But do you need to plan that? I don't think so. And when you look at the research data, this idea that people who are menopausal or postmenopausal or premenopausal menopausal you train differently, there's just no solid data to support that. You know, I, I think, I'm probably in trouble for this, but I think every single person wants to feel like there's some kind of unique unicorn. And so like have some special training program. Right. And the reality is that what works tends to work across the board. Uh, but that being said, again, that doesn't mean you can't auto-regulate. Uh like somebody asked me this, they're like, "Oh, I, I track my HRV and I track my you know recovery on my Aura ring or whatever it is." Well, you can actually have what's called a nocebo effect, which is your watch tells you you slept terribly or you're under recovered, and so you get to the gym and you go, "Oh yeah, I do feel bad." Whereas if you've never seen that, you wouldn't have that response. So what I'll tell people is, you know, I'm not saying that stuff can't be useful, but really. You should auto regulate based on how you're feeling when you actually get to the gym and warm up. So, I've again, like I, I actually use, I'm, I'm a super nerd. So, I actually use a, as powerlifting, I'll use a bar velocity device. So, basically, it tells me how fast my bar speed is. Mm-hmm. And I know based on my warm ups what my bar speed should be at those different warm up weights. And so, if I get in the gym and I'm feeling like crap, I slept like crap the night before and my bar speed slower. Then yeah, I'm gonna back off the weight. But if I, you know, maybe didn't sleep well, but I'm warming up and I feel okay and my bar speed's there. Why would I, why would I go lighter? Like regardless, isn't the most important thing your actual performance rather than all these surrogate measures? So I think we get too caught up in trying to predict things and we should just take things as they come.
0: Yeah. No, that's why I won't, I I don't have an aura ring because I could see myself getting caught up in that nocebo effect, especially with sleep. Oh my god, I didn't sleep. Oh, okay, now, now I'm gonna be hungrier today. And I'm gonna feel like shit today. No, I won't do it. I won't do it. And the first time I saw one of those, what do you call it the velocity? It was at the Philadelphia Eagles training facility where the dudes train. Oh, my God, these machines were amazing. Like they would tell the guys, like, are you strong today or are you not? Like, how did you compare to the last workout? What should yeah, you yeah. go up in? And so it had nothing to do even with how you felt. Like you might come in, like you said, feeling like shit, but you pull a PR. And there's the there's the data right there telling you. It's amazing. My,
1: my best all-time squat set for like around 10 reps, I think at 10, I got nine reps, was 530. I think it was 530 pounds. I did nine reps. And that was after a night where I traveled the day before and literally did not sleep the night before that. And I went in the gym. and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to take what's there today. And I had like a certain weight on the, on the sheet. And I was like, okay, well, we'll see what's there. I did all my sets. And I'm like, I had a what's called an AMRAP program, which is basically as many reps as possible for my last set. Mm-hmm. And even though I felt tired, I felt shaking. You know how you feel when you're like a little bit sleep deprived? I was moving the weight well and I was like, well, I guess we're doing the same rep. And I got nine reps. So there you go. You know, again, I'm not saying that like, you know, that's what would usually happen. Usually I'd probably perform a little bit worse, but for whatever reason, you know, recovery isn't just sleep. It's a it's hundreds of different factors all coming together at once. Like I said, I'm more of a fan of just looking, seeing what your performance is on that day and auto-regulating based on that.
0: Yep, definitely. Thank you for all that because everybody needs to hear this message, like mass messaging of this, just lift heavy shit and don't get caught up in all the devices because there's just too many of them. However hard you think you're going, you can go harder. I promise you. I'm going to take that into the gym tomorrow too. I'm going to take this message with me and I'm going to, because you're right. There are times where you're just like, you're going through the motions, but it's just don't waste that time. If you made it there, if you made it to the gym, then make, get the most out of it. Don't be talking. Don't be on your phone. Just go get the best workout that you can because you blocked out that time and your body made it there. So that's step one.
1: Well, and also like, you know, don't just do the same thing every time. Like I see so many people just come in the gym like, well, I guess I'll slap a plate on the side of the barbell and do this many reps. Right. If you do it, if you keep doing the same thing, your body has no impetus to change. Okay goes for anything in life. If you want to create change, uh, my coach, uh, my coach, Zach Robinson, for powerlifting, he said it very well. Adaptation is not comfortable. So if you want to force your body to adapt,
0: you have to get uncomfortable. We can apply that to pretty much every area of life. That one quote, that one quote. Seriously. All right, Lane, we're going to end on poop. Um, So because that's a perfect place to end, right? So I'm going to tell you this. Well, it's usually where I start my day, but still, you know. But yeah, after a good cup of coffee. But right. Yes. Um, but no, one thing that I say, and this is going to tie into the gut too, and I think what what is your what's your mug? Nice. Yes. Drinking the tears of my haters is what it says. So. I also, say, I also have one that says, uh, uh, "Coffee makes
1: me poop." So I've got some really entertaining. And it food. just
0: does, and it
1: just does. <laughs> Yeah, for about 50% of people, some people don't get that response, but for about, they actually don't know what doesn't, either. they're not quite sure what, what component of coffee causes that, but
0: I just a figured course. it was stimulant effects. but you would know more than me. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. There's
1: a few theories here.
0: But now I want to tie it into the gut too, because one thing that I always say, and I, I say this over and over, over again, and it drives me crazy. These functional integrative practitioners out there, health coaches, whatever saying, if we just heal your gut, we are going to heal your thyroid. We are going to fix every disease you possibly can imagine going on in your body because the gut, it all starts in the gut. Your immunity starts in the gut. Everything, every disease in the world starts in the gut. What is your take? I think I know your take on it, but I'm going to let you take this.
1: So yes, there is evidence that the gut and gut health has tie-ins all across the body in different diseases. However, We are such in an infancy of understanding the gut microbiome. Anyone who's making hard recommendations other than the following, consume sufficient amount of prebiotic fibers, exercise, don't eat too much and limit your saturated fat. Anybody making recommendations other than those four is talking out of their ass uh, because we really don't know much else. So we do know if you exercise, first off, We've only correlated a lot of stuff, so reverse causality can always be true. So people say, "Well, you got to heal your gut so you can do X." Well, maybe X is actually what heals your gut. Okay, right. so yep. like exercise. We know that people who exercise a lot have a different gut microflora on average than people who don't. Now, does that mean people with you know a certain gut microflora are better at exercise, or does it mean gut exercise changes your gut microbiome? We know that people who are obese have low amounts of certain bacteria and high amounts of others that lean people don't. Now, did they become obese because they lack those, or did obesity change their gut microbiome? We don't know the answers to those questions. Gut healing, or just gut in general, has now become what inflammation was 10 years ago, which you know, everything's about inflammation and you got to heal the inflammation first before. And most of these jokers don't even know what inflammation is because they're like, oh yeah, my knees feel better. That is not the same inflammation that you're referring to. When people talk about inflammation, I'll say, okay, so you had your CRP and your IL-6 done and they'll just look at me with very blank stares of what are those? Well, Uh those are your inflammatory markers. So yeah, I think gut health has been used kind of ubiquitously by charlatans to sell people protocols they don't need. Here's what we know is healthy for your gut: exercise, don't eat too much, consume enough fiber, and probably limit your saturated fat. And the reason for the sat well, the reason for the saturated fat is not necessarily the saturated fat itself, but saturated fat tends to generate more bile, and the bile end products of saturated fat appears to be somewhat negative for certain uh, beneficial species of bacteria. Now, dietary fiber, we know increases gut microdiversity and is the main fuel for the gut microbiome. So it's so funny. And again, it just shows people will, will draw the wrong conclusion, say, Well, you know, when I eat plants or, or fiber, I get really gassy and bloated. It's obviously bad for my gut microbiome. What do you think the gut microbiome does? It produces short chain fatty acids from dietary fiber. That is literally what they run on. When you're gassy, that typically means your gut is actually pretty happy in terms of your gut microbiome. You may feel uncomfortable physically, but those are the main fuels for those gut microbiota. So I think people have equated like, whether or not they have like some kind of GI distress with a healthy gut microbiome. right? And those two things should not necessarily be connected. I think, you know, the, the the protocol for healing your gut, don't eat too much exercise, eat enough dietary fiber with, with a good amount of soluble fiber, and don't eat too much saturated fat. And those are your gut hacks.
0: And please notice that he did not say eat Activia yogurt and take a probiotic every day.
1: Yeah, the data on probiotics is pretty underwhelming. So uh, I have one of my former lab mates, so she was doing her masters while I was doing my PhD at the University of Illinois. We were both in the same lab under Dr. Don Lehman. Her name is Su- uh, Dr. Suzanne Devkota, and she is one of the foremost experts in the gut microbiome in the world. And what she's told me, and what the research shows, is that these probiotics simply don't have, so let me first define the difference. Probiotics are active live microbiota uh, that you take, okay? You, I think you need something like on the order of trillions in order to colonize the gut. And these things are on the order of like millions. Yep. So you're like, you, you just don't get enough in order to actually change the colonization of your gut. Now, prebiotic fibers as fuel can change the colonization of your gut because they are fuels. Now, the other thing is when the studies were they've given enough microbiota to actually cause colonization, if you're not giving enough prebiotic fibers for those particular microbiota, then they, they they actually go away anyway. You just go back to your normal amount, your normal gut microflora. So even if you were to take a, a probiotic that did colonize, which is unlikely, it's just going to go away if you don't fuel it properly with enough dietary fiber.
0: And I have said that over and over again, that the highest probiotic that I've seen is like 250 million or billion even, 250 billion, and there are trillions. So you still have billions and trillions of guys in your gut not getting fed by that probiotic that you're popping every day.
1: Right.
0: Yeah, I love it, I love it. Thank you for touching on that because we just had to, we just had to. And so, okay, last question, there is a last question because I I have heard you say this and I'm so happy again that you said this out loud. They you don't have to poop after every meal. So we're going to end on pooping after every meal. That's what we're ending on.
1: (laughs) Yeah. um, You know, everybody's like fecal movements, bowel movements are different. I'm somebody who is pretty frequent, but I also eat like 50, 60 grams of fiber a day and a high amount of calories overall. So I'm just going to have more bowel movements than somebody eating 1500 calories and 20 grams of fiber a day. Right. But, you know, if you were somebody who needs to, I mean, like this can be very boring recommendation, but fiber is one of the fiber and drinking enough water. Because if you just increase your fiber intake, but don't increase your water, it can actually cause constipation because the way fiber works is by adding bulk to stool and about 75% of that bulk is actually water. I do recommend increasing fiber intake, but that needs to also correspond with enough water. But if if you're pooping regularly once a day, you're probably fine.
0: That's a win, yeah. Yeah, that's a win. Well, Lane, thank you so much for just coming on here imparting your wisdom, your your thesaurus of a brain. I mean, I just I I love it. I love it. I love everything. So what do you have going on right now? I know we talked about the carbon app, because I'm a huge, huge proponent of it. But what else is going on? Where can people find you? And where can they kind of just connect and get your services?
1: Yeah, so I'm BioLane on all social media and my main hub website is BioLane.com and you can find everything we sell and offer on BioLane.com. I have a monthly research review. So if you enjoy me talking about studies, uh, we have a research review called REPS where every month we break down five studies that are relevant to nutrition and exercise and supplementation. And I break them down like no very little jargon, you know, just a way that the average person can understand and like give you like basically how you can apply it to yourself as well. Uh, We also have the workout builder on our website, which is basically like customizable training templates for people who need help with resistance training. We also offer one-on-one coaching. If you need more support through our coaching team, Team BioLane. we're going to, we serviced over a thousand clients last year and had rave reviews. Uh, I can't remember the last time we got a negative piece of feedback. Uh, These are all like really expert coaches who deeply care about their clients. You know, they do a great job. I've got my supplement line Outwork Nutrition. So if you're looking for evidence-based performance supplements. Our nutrition is great, and then I'll also have I have some short courses available right now, but later this year I'm going to be launching launching something called Physique Coaching Academy. So if you're somebody who's looking to become like a coach who helps people lose fat, build muscle, uh, this is going to be the go-to certification for that. I'm building it alongside uh, Dr. Professor Bill Campbell from USF, and Bill Campbell's lab is called the Female Physique Enhancement Lab. So he basically focuses on physique enhancement, especially looking at females. It's the only lab in the country that really focuses on that. And I've seen his sections of Physique Coaching Academy and it's it's gonna blow people's minds. So if you're somebody who like, unfortunately right now, if you want to like, you have like personal training certifications that don't really cover nutrition, but right. you have nutrition certifications, that cover nutrition, but a lot of extra stuff that you don't really need if you're looking to train people for fat loss and muscle building. So we kind of combine those things together and basically, give you what you do need with nothing you don't. And uh, yeah, it's, we're we're looking at it being basically the equivalent of like an associate's degree is what we want. So um that's gonna be coming soon, and we're very excited about that.
0: That is awesome. That is so needed. And especially because I think in this world, people see women as little men, you know, yeah. and and to have that women's physique expert, like you said, really dialing it in for the way, oh my gosh. That's amazing! I'm excited. Yeah, we're very excited. Very cool. Well, thank you, Lane. Thank you so much for your time today. And yeah, I look forward to. I'm going to join the research group because I, I love how you break down the study. So awesome! Yeah, it's a great product. Cool. Thank you again.
1: All right. Thank you so much for having me.